Lord, I thank you for this morning. I pray that you'd be with us as we look into your word. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it to our lives. We pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts um, as we look into your word that was breathed out by the spirit. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. All right. Well, good morning, like I said to everyone. Um, This morning, we are continuing our series in overviewing the books of the Bible by looking at the book of Deuteronomy. Last week, Stephen got us through numbers, and so Deuteronomy is up next. And Deuteronomy is the conclusion to the first major section of the Bible, called the Pentateuch, which just means five books, pretty straightforward. So Deuteronomy acts as a kind of summary for all the events that have happened previously in the Pentateuch, and it also acts as a synthesis of some of the major ideas and kind of aspects of how God is relating to his people. So because of Deuteronomy's important role in summarizing and synthesizing this redemptive story, today we're actually going to take most of our time to look at some high-level truths about how the covenants of Scripture that we've seen so far fit together. Specifically, we're going to look at how the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant are related, so we can understand both of them uh, more in detail. Now, Scott Huffman introduced us to the Abrahamic covenant when we went through Genesis, and Deuteronomy... Uh, provides a lot of information about the Mosaic Covenant, and in addition, also introduces us to the New Covenant, which we'll see kind of at the end of our lesson. But before we get to that main course, I kind of want to set the table just with some introductory material about Deuteronomy so that we can understand what's going on here. So first of all, Moses wrote Deuteronomy. He is the author for um, all the five books of the Pentateuch, but in Deuteronomy, it's interesting because we actually find his death recorded at the very end which tells us that someone actually came along and finished the book for him, compiled it, edited it. That doesn't mean that we should distrust the inerrancy of this book, the inspiration of this book. God guided the hand of that compiler just as he did Moses. But it's interesting that we actually see his death recorded here. We can still call Moses the author of the book, even though there's this evidence of someone else kind of putting it together. So Moses is the author. Next, the setting. We see when and where Deuteronomy was written at the very beginning of the book. So if you would like to open up to Deuteronomy chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 of that chapter. It says, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea, In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. So these verses tell us that Deuteronomy falls at the end of the wilderness wandering of the nation of Israel. This is after everyone except for Moses, Caleb, and Joshua have passed away from that first generation that came out of Egypt. As we learned last week from Numbers... When the Israelites were about to enter the land in Numbers 14, they had the opportunity to go in to Canaan, and instead they evidenced a lack of faith. They had more fear of the Canaanites in the land than they had fear of God. And because of this, the entire generation of adults who disbelieved and disobeyed were kept from entering the land. Instead, they were cursed to spend the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness, just waiting for them all to die off. That was really the purpose. 
At the end of Numbers, in the beginning of Deuteronomy, we have a new generation, the generation of children and those who were born during the wilderness wandering who were now uh, constituting the people of Israel. They are on the east side of the Jordan River, where the nation of Jordan is now, and they are preparing to enter into Canaan, the land of Israel. Now, very little narrative occurs in Deuteronomy. From the end of Numbers to the beginning of Joshua, which is the book that comes next, it's almost the exact same place in history. Not much narrative happens. The only thing that we see moving forward is that in chapter 31, um, they, there are instructions given for the passing of the torch from Moses to Joshua when Moses dies. And then in chapter 34, we see the story recorded of Moses dying. That's really the only narrative in the entire book. That means that Deuteronomy is 30-some-odd chapters of Moses talking to the people. It's really just him delivering this extended sermon to the nation of Israel. And that begs the question, why do we have this sermon? Why do we have this extended section of Moses talking to the people in the midst of this story of them coming into the land? And as we'll see, a lot of what Moses says is actually repetition. He's rehearsing the story of the nation of Israel to this point. He's reminding them of the law that they've already heard. So again, why do we have this extended sermon of things we've already heard in the middle of this narrative? Well, Deuteronomy is Moses' last chance to remind the people of everything that they should know. It's his last chance to charge the people to obey God. Moses reminds them of what has happened before so that they will remember the faithfulness of God and the failures of the people that have come before him. And remember that Exodus, Leviticus, and the first half of Numbers all concerned one generation. That generation that came out of Exodus, or came out of Egypt in the Exodus. But that generation is all gone now. The generation in Deuteronomy that Moses is addressing are, like I said, the children of that generation. And there are some who were you know, below the age of 20 and maybe came out through the Exodus, were at Mount Sinai, saw these events happening. But there are also many people in the nation of Israel at this point who were not born at that point. They never saw it. They were children of the wilderness over the 40 years. And even think about this, whether they saw these events happen in the Exodus or whether they were born in the Exodus, or excuse me, born in the wilderness, these events happened 40 years ago. It's like asking me about something that happened in the 70s or the 80s. I was born in 92. So if, if something, if someone was, if I was going to learn from something that happened during those decades, someone's going to have to teach me about them. Someone's going to have to remind me and tell me of what I should know from that time period. So this is why Moses reviews their history. He reviews their law so that they have it in front of them, because it's just not natural to them. It's been a long time. He wants to remind the people of what happens, or what happened, when their previous generation disobeyed. He wants that to be at the forefront of their minds. And he wants to remind the people of what they're signing up for in this covenant. So he rehearses the law with them again. The word Deuteronomy in Greek means second law. Deutero is second, namos is law. And that's a translation of the Hebrew, which means a copy of the law. This isn't a replacement of the first law. It's not coming in place of it. It's more of a recapitulation. It's more of a reminder of this law given to the new generation. It's the same law with a new people. 
Now, there is new material given in Deuteronomy, but it's more rounding out the law that they already had, not replacing it. These are the final instructions to the nation before they begin the conquest of the land. Now, you could summarize the main theme of the book of Deuteronomy with a phrase from chapter 4, verse 1. Listen and live. That's what Moses is trying to get across in this entire book. Listen to the words that I'm telling you and live. Respond to them. This is what Deuteronomy 4.1 says. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I'm teaching you and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. So Moses is saying that all of the material in Deuteronomy is a matter of life and death. The Israelites face a choice. Are they going to obey and live and enter the land? Are they going to disobey and have the same thing happen to them that happened to their parents? This is Deuteronomy. So that's the setting. That's kind of the the basic idea of Deuteronomy. But now let's take a step back and consider the storyline of redemptive history. We're going to do this because we can only really understand the Mosaic covenant that we find in Deuteronomy in light of the Abrahamic covenant. So we're going to go back For those of you who weren't here or for those of you who just haven't thought through the Abrahamic covenant as much um, so that we can understand the Mosaic covenant. And then once we see that connection between the Mosaic and Abrahamic covenants, we'll also be able to understand the new covenant more clearly. But first things first, the Abrahamic covenant is something that we find introduced between God and Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And I'll read those now. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So the Abrahamic covenant centers on blessing. It God promises to bless Abraham, he promises to bless his descendants, and he promises to bless the entire world through Abraham and his descendants. God made this covenant as part of his unfolding plan of redemption. It's kind of like letting us in on God's working, his plan to rescue the people from their sins. And he's telling us that his plan of salvation is going to concern Abraham and his descendants. It's going to come through his line. Now let's look at the content of the covenant and what God specifically promises to Abraham. He promises to give Abraham land, to make Abraham a great nation, to bless Abraham, make Abraham's name great, and bless the world through Abraham. And God expounds on these promises further on in Genesis as he continues to communicate with Abraham. In Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22, he further explains what these blessings are going to look like. We find that God is going to give Abraham offspring. He's going to give him a son and descendants beyond that. Even though Abraham is an old man with an old wife, and neither of whom are able to have children, God is going to overcome that and give them offspring. And not only that, he's going to give them offspring that will become so great you can't even number them. And those innumerable offspring are going to become a nation. Not just a big family, but an entire nation. And that nation of Abraham's offspring is going to inherit and dwell in the land that God has promised Abraham. God's blessing will be upon this nation 
and God will use this nation to bless the entire world. Now, as Scott said several weeks ago when we covered this in Genesis, perhaps the most important thing to remember about this covenant is that it is unconditional. The Abrahamic covenant is unconditional, meaning that God is going to perform the promises, the blessings that he has given in this covenant regardless of Abraham's response. And it's not based on any action of Abraham. This is an unprompted blessing from God. God is working his redemptive plan in the world according to his sovereign plan and his sovereign grace, not because of the goodness of Abraham or any other human, but because of his good pleasure. Because this covenant is unconditional, the blessings of the covenant will come whether Abraham obeys or not, whether Isaac obeys or not, whether Jacob obeys or not. These promises are going to, be, going to come because God has promised it, and he will fulfill it. These promises are unconditional. Now we can see this unconditional nature of the covenant even further evidenced in how Abraham responds to it. In Genesis 15, verse 6, it says that Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham received this promise of blessing by faith. He responded to God's working by believing in him, by trusting in him. And that faith was the conduit for God to credit to him that righteousness. And this is keeping, this is in keeping with how God has always worked salvation. It's not on the basis of anything that we do. It's, what, it's on the basis of what God has done, and it is given to us by faith, by grace through faith. Now, this holds for Abraham, but it also holds for everyone under the Abrahamic covenant. Everyone throughout all of history who has been saved has been saved because of what God has done, and that is credited to them through their faith, not on the basis of anything they've done, but on the basis of what God has done. All right, so we see this unconditional promise given in the Abrahamic covenant. But that's not all there is in the Abrahamic covenant. That's the big idea that we need to hold on to. But while this is an unconditional promise, and it comes to Abraham by faith, Abraham's obedience or disobedience actually does have ramifications. Okay, this covenant is unconditional, but Abraham's response has ramifications. This is an important distinction. The blessings of the covenant are not conditioned on or brought about by Abraham's obedience or disobedience. But he will experience the blessings of the covenant differently depending on how he responds. To put it a different way, God is going to accomplish his plan of redemption regardless of how Abraham responds. He's going to bless the world through Jesus, who is Abraham's greatest descendant, the one who's going to bring blessing to the world, God is going to make Israel a nation. He's going to bring them into their promised land. And he's going to do that regardless of whether Abraham and his descendants obey. But Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the nation of Israel will experience the blessing if they obey. And they will not experience the blessing if they do not obey. So their obedience or disobedience determines how they experience the blessing. You could say that Abraham and his descendants' obedience does not determine whether the blessing will happen, but it does determine how and when they experience the blessing, or if they do not experience it and their descendants do. If you think of the story of Abraham, he does not always act in keeping 
with his faith, the faith that he evidenced back in chapter 15. He offers his wife, Sarah, to multiple men in order to save his own life. He, um, doesn't, he doubts God's plan to provide him with a child, and he even subverts God's plan by having a son with Hagar. So he doesn't always act according to his faith. And in those instances, God is not pleased. He rebukes Abraham. He disciplines Abraham. And Abraham does not enjoy the blessing from God in those specific instances. But that doesn't affect the fact that God is going to keep his promise to bless Abraham. That promise is unconditional. How Abraham experienced it, though, is determined, on, determined by how he responds. Now, the Abrahamic covenant can be described as a grant covenant. And this is a form of covenant common in the ancient Middle East, which was an unconditional promise from one person to another. It was a covenant that determined the, it kind of gave words to the stipulations of, of what someone is going to do. It guaranteed a promise from one person to another, put it in writing. It was not a you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back type of deal. It wasn't a give and take. It was a guarantee that one party was going to accomplish something for another party. It was a promise that spelled out the particular terms of what that person was going to do. And so in that sense, it's unconditional. However, as we said, this doesn't mean that there are no ramifications for the actions of the other party. Though the promise holds, that other party's experience of what's given to them can change based on how they respond. And here's an example. In a grant covenant, you could have a master giving an inheritance to one of his slaves and then by proxy to his descendants. So that promise is going to hold regardless of how that slave responds. But... Let's say that slave goes and gets thrown in prison because of his disobedience to the law. So he still is owed that inheritance. The inheritance is going to come to him, but he doesn't get to use it. He's in prison. He doesn't get to experience it. So it gets passed on to his descendants. So in that sense, that covenant is still unconditional, and yet the person's actions determine how they experience the blessings of the covenant. Now we can see both of these aspects of the Abrahamic covenant in the story of the Old Testament. The Abrahamic covenant is the backdrop for the story of the nation of Israel. We see the unconditional nature of the promise as God overcomes many obstacles to uphold his promises. He gives Abraham a son in his old age. He preserves Abraham's family through much opposition. He brings them to Egypt and preserves them there. He blesses them in Egypt and grows them into that great nation that we mentioned. And if you look in Exodus 2.24, we actually have a specific mention that God remembers his covenant and acts according to it. It says, and God heard their groaning. This is when uh, Israel was in slavery to the Egyptians. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So in that instance, God saw his people, he remembered his covenant, and he honored it. He then began the process of bringing them out from the nation of Egypt in order to bring them to their land. He was acting in accordance with his unconditional covenant. And then once he has brought them to Mount Sinai, when Moses comes back down and sees them worshiping this golden calf, Moses actually uses the Abrahamic covenant to remind God, not that God had forgotten, but to say, no, God, this is what you've promised. Act in accordance with this. I know you're going to. And Moses says to God in Exodus 32, verses 13 and 14, 
Remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. So this is the unconditional side of the covenant, that even with all of these, this opposition, even with these obstacles, even with the disobedience of the people, God is loyal to his covenant. He accomplishes what he said he was going to do. However, the other side of that covenant is what we saw in Numbers 14. When this nation evidenced a, when this, excuse me, generation evidenced a continued corporate disobedience, they were kept from experiencing the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. They were about to go into the land. They were about to be established over the nations as God had promised to Abraham. And yet, because they continued to disbelieve God, they continued to disobey, God said, you don't get to experience that part of the blessing. That doesn't mean God stopped honoring the blessing. He raised up this new generation to take their place. But that specific generation did not get to enjoy the blessings of the covenant because of their disobedience. And this is where the Mosaic Covenant fits into the picture. Remember that the Abrahamic Covenant is a grant covenant. It's something that one person is guaranteeing to another. The Mosaic Covenant is different. It's not that type of unconditional covenant. It's called a suzerain-vassal treaty. Now, there's no test for the names of ancient covenants at the end of this. You don't need to know all that means. A suzerain is just a type of king. And a vassal would be one of his subjects. So this is a treaty between a king and his subjects. The main thing to remember as we talk about these different kind of covenants is that the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional type, whereas the Mosaic covenant follows the pattern of a conditional covenant. A suzerain vassal treaty like the Mosaic covenant is a bilateral agreement, meaning there are stipulations and conditions for each party. This is a I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back type of deal. Basically what would happen is an ancient king would tell his subjects that he would keep them safe, he would protect them, take care of them, as long as they were faithful to him, as long as they obeyed him and honored him as king. For those who broke the covenant, for those who disobeyed and didn't follow the king, they would be cursed. They, would be, uh, they wouldn't get the protection. They would get the punishment for breaking the covenant. Now we find this covenant mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 5, Verses 1 through 3. It says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. So here we see that God instituted this covenant with Israel at Horeb, which is Mount Sinai. This is a reference to when God met with Moses and entered into this covenant with the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus. And we see um, the book of Leviticus adding the uh, regulations for the tabernacle, the commands added in Numbers. We see this covenant kind of being, um, more things are being included into it. until we get to Deuteronomy, which I said earlier is that copy of the law, the recapitulation to this new generation. Now, it's called the Mosaic Covenant because Moses acted as a mediator between God and Israel in the giving of this covenant. 
But we should really think of this covenant not just between God and Moses, but between God and Israel. This is a covenant that God, the king, is entering into with his subjects, the nation of Israel. And it is outlining the pattern and the obligations that they have to obey him now that he has brought them out of Egypt and is constituting them as a nation. Now, this covenant between God and Israel is different than the Abrahamic covenant. And we see Moses spelled that out in Deuteronomy 5.3. He said, this is, not like, or this is not the covenant that God made with your fathers. And by saying that, he doesn't mean the prior generation that just died off in numbers. He means their forefathers, the patriarchs. He's saying, this covenant is different than the covenant I made with Abraham. So they're different, but the two covenants are connected. And that's kind of the point of what we're talking about today. So if you're going to get one thing from this lesson, this is kind of the big idea of how the Abrahamic and Mosaic covenants fit together. God instituted the Mosaic covenant as the specific means for the nation of Israel, there in Deuteronomy, to experience the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. God instituted the Mosaic covenant as the specific means for the nation of Israel to experience the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. The Mosaic covenant was for a specific people at a specific time. It was God's standard for the nation of Israel as they go in to take the land. He's giving them specific instructions for what their obedience needs to look like. And as they obey, he's saying, if you obey, you get to experience the specific blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. You notice that the, you know, with Abraham, like we said, it's an unconditional covenant. It doesn't really focus on Abraham's um, obligations, because that's not the main point of the Abrahamic covenant. But his, his obedience does matter. Here in Deuteronomy, we see many more obligations spelled out under this new covenant for how the Israelites are supposed to live. But we also see many more specific blessings and promises of what they're going to experience coming into the land. In Deuteronomy 28, we see spelled out really crystal clear what their blessing in the land will look like if they obey. And this is verses 1 through 14. I won't read all of it. I'll just give you a taste of it. It says, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. So this is going to sound like the Abrahamic covenant, but the blessings are much more specific from here on. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And it goes on and on, giving these really specific blessings for this land that the Israelites can see. They can almost taste it. So this is... The Mosaic Covenant is giving um, the means for them to experience specific blessings under the Abrahamic Covenant. And when we understand how they fit together, we can actually see that the Mosaic Covenant is not offering Israel a way to achieve salvation by obedience to the law. Sometimes it's easy to misconstrue the purpose of the law to say, well, okay, so in the Old Covenant, God saved the Israelites who were able to obey the law. Well, that's not what the purpose of the law is. The purpose of the law is to give the Israelites an opportunity to experience the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant in their context. We just saw the first generation who had this opportunity fail, 
Not that they failed to achieve salvation. That comes by faith. That's separate. But they did fail to experience the blessings that they could have had under this Abrahamic covenant. So the main purpose of Deuteronomy is to encourage the Israelites to obey their side of the covenant and then get to enjoy the specific blessings that they could have back from Genesis 12. So that's the main purpose, but it also encourages the Israelites to place their faith in God, which again is the way to salvation. Deuteronomy does this by showing who God is very clearly and by showing that the Israelites can trust him, both by how he's acted in the past and then who he is and will be moving forward. And we can see this in the beginning of the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy 5, he goes through these commandments again. And this is verses 6 through 8. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image. And then in uh, chapter 6, one chapter later, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. What is the law telling the Israelites to do? He's telling them, trust in God. Love God. Look at who God is and believe in him. Don't trust these other gods. Don't trust these other idols. Don't put your faith anywhere else. The law is encouraging them to believe in God and then to have that faith develop into obedience. And that obedience to the rest of the law will then turn into Israel getting to experience specific blessings in the land, bringing other nations into submission to them, uh, having their offspring grow and become great, and experience all the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, one of the most significant ways that Deuteronomy talks about this faith is in chapter 10. And I'll read verses 12 and 13 and then verse 16. In Deuteronomy 10, it says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Okay, so this seems like it should be simple. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I'm commanding you today for your good. That sounds harder than I thought it was going to be. And then verse 16, he says, You do all this by circumcising, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. I can imagine being an Israelite hearing that and saying, wait, he said, all that I have to do is this and this and this and this and this, and then culminating by performing spiritual heart surgery, changing my own heart? I don't know if I can do that. Moses is using this metaphor of circumcising your own heart to remind the people they can only obey by removing the sinful uh, spiritual flesh of their own heart, the stubbornness of their heart. Circumcision was a physical sign for Israelite men to show that they were part of the covenant. And Moses here uses it as a spiritual metaphor, saying that the Israelites need to do this in order to obey. Their hearts must be changed. But like I said, when you hear that, the response that Moses is trying to elicit is, I can't do that. I can't change my own heart. I can't fulfill all of these perfectly. And this is a reminder that though the law can be helpful in pointing people to God and pointing people to their need for God, it cannot change people. Only God can do that. The people of Israel were not saved by obedience to the law. They were saved by faith in God. They experienced blessing from the Abrahamic covenant because of their obedience to the law. 
But even here in Deuteronomy, as it's telling the people what they need to do to enjoy the blessings that they can have, it's telling them you can't do this on your own. You need God to change your hearts. So that brings up the question, how did Israel respond to this law throughout their history? Well, Deuteronomy actually provides some interesting litmus tests. And there's so many things I wish we could get into in Deuteronomy. But as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, a lot of times when you read something, whether you know it or not, it's referring back to part of the law in Deuteronomy. All throughout the Old Testament, through the Gospels, through the New Testament. Because this is the book of the law for the nation of Israel. One example of that is in chapter 17. Moses gives the qualifications for what good kings and bad kings over the nation of Israel will be like. He says that those kings who follow God should copy the entire law for themselves so they can have it before them, so they can know it and follow God. He says that bad kings will accumulate horses and gold and wives, and they'll rely on Egypt as an ally. So he's providing them kind of categories for how to to see whether kings are following God and leading the nation in obedience to God. Now, some kings, as we read through the history of of Israel, um, they evidence that they're following God. We see that they are uh, tearing down the places of idolatry. We see that they're leading the people in dependence on God. But others check all those boxes of what kings shouldn't be. You'll notice little descriptions, and this person accumulated this many horses, and this much gold, and this many wives, and they relied on Egypt. Those are used as kind of signposts back to Deuteronomy to say, remember, we talked about this, they disobeyed, and this is why they're experiencing these curses instead of this blessing. So leaders like Joshua, who comes after Moses, or David, or Hezekiah, or Josiah, generally led the nation in faith and obedience, and as such, their, their reigns were characterized by blessing. But if you've read First and Second Kings, you know that most of the kings did not live that way. Most of them lived in disobedience. And if you want to look at Israel's view of the law throughout their history, even in the reign of a good king like Josiah, in Second Kings 22, There's the story of Josiah finding the book of the law in the temple. That book is Deuteronomy. The nation of Israel had lost the book of Deuteronomy. They'd gotten so far from the king supposed to write his own copy of it to they didn't even know where it was. So that's how the nation of Israel did with this law. More often than not, it ended up being a witness against them to convict them of their sin. But even this was a part of God's plan. He knew that Israel would not always follow him with their whole heart. And like we said, more often, probably not. And he told them this at the end of Deuteronomy. That's encouraging going into the land. By the way, you're not going to do well with this. (laughs) That would be really encouraging. There's this really unique scene described in Deuteronomy 27 through 30. We read part of that in chapter 28. But Moses, this is right at the cusp, the end of his life. He tells them, once you go into the land... After I die and I can't go with you, once you guys go into the land, I want you to divide the nation of Israel. Half of you go up to one mountain, half of you go up to this other mountain. And I want you to rehearse the blessings and the cursings of the law. This picture that I have is them hurtling these curses and blessings across this giant valley against each other. And what Moses is doing is trying to give them every chance to keep the law in front of them, to remember what will happen if they obey, what will happen if they disobey. And it's striking that the section for 
the curses that will come if they disobey is significantly longer than the section for their blessings, like three times longer. And not only is the space devoted more significant, but the extent of the curses that will come because of their disobedience is much greater than the extent of the blessings that they can experience. God describes that their disobedience will grow so great that he will actually disperse them among the foreign nations. He will take them out of the land that he is about to give them. He's brought them up to this point, culminating to fulfill these promises to Abraham, and they're going to mess it up so badly that he's going to take it away from a future generation. God tells them that they will go into exile because of their consistent, continued disobedience. But, even as God acknowledges the depths of their sinfulness, he promises hope. Remember, this is all still in the backdrop of that unconditional Abrahamic covenant. This is what God says in Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 3. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you again from all the tribes where the Lord your God has scattered you. So God God promises that though the nation of Israel will be exiled due to their sinfulness, God will graciously restore them and reconstitute them as a nation. Like I said, again, we're reminded of the unconditional promises in the Abrahamic covenant. Even though certain generations of the Israelites will not experience these blessings, God will not renege on his promises. And just like he took the blessings from that Exodus generation and then gave that opportunity to this new generation, he will continue doing that throughout the history of the nation of Israel. But there's actually even better news in Deuteronomy 30. It gets better from there. Not only are we told that God will restore Israel in keeping with his blessings to Abraham, we're also given a sneak peek of God's plan for the future beyond that. This is Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So this makes us think about Deuteronomy 10 where he said, circumcise your heart. He said, well, we can't do that. Deuteronomy 30 says, God will do this for you. So it's, it's both a reminder that that was, that was really what's behind Deuteronomy 10 to make them think, I can't do this, I need God. But it's a promise and a preview of the new covenant where God will do this. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel were both prophesying to Israel and Judah later in their history. And actually, a lot of what they're doing is just taking the, the stipulations of Deuteronomy and the Mosaic Covenant and applying it to the nation and saying, this is what God commands, this is what you're doing, so this is what's going to happen. You're going to be exiled if you don't repent. So they're really just giving Deuteronomy to the people. But both of these prophets speak of this new covenant that is coming. They refer to this promise in Deuteronomy 30. These are some longer sections, but I'm going to read Jeremiah 31. 31 to 34, and then Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, 
though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And then in Ezekiel 36, And I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. This new covenant that Jeremiah and Ezekiel prophesied about is the new covenant that Jesus instituted by his life, his death, his resurrection. Jesus is the greatest blessing promised to Abraham, and he came to provide salvation to anyone who places their faith in him. He brings life to those who are spiritually dead, and all those who believe in him receive the Holy Spirit. They talked about there in Ezekiel. The Spirit is the one who regenerates our heart, who does that spiritual heart surgery and gives us the ability to obey God. The New Covenant also brings ultimate cleansing from sin, forgiveness, like we hear about in Hebrews, where the sacrifice has been offered once for all. We don't have to abide by the sacrificial system every day, on and on. And it brings resurrection from the dead, the last enemy to be destroyed. Everything about this new covenant is better than the Mosaic covenant. And the new covenant has replaced the Mosaic covenant. Jesus fulfilled the obligations of the law and the intents of the law through his life, death, and resurrection. You can read about this in Romans, in Galatians, in Hebrews. The the authors of Scripture are really excited about this because they understand how the covenants fit together. And there's a lot written in the New Testament about the law. And you could even say against the law. But what Paul and others are really doing, they're very careful to say, is the law bad? No, may never be. The law is good, it's holy, it's righteous. Those are all words that they used to describe it. What they're fighting against is the idea of the Jews in that day that they could still relate to God through the Mosaic Covenant, through their obedience. And Paul was saying, no, it's through Jesus. You don't have to go back to that. There's something better. Not that the law was bad for what it was, but they were misinterpreting the law. The old covenant has passed away, and something better is here. Now, there's a lot more that we could say about the new covenant. We don't have time, and other people will be teaching Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And even in our sermon today from Colossians, you're going to hear new covenant promises to the new covenant people. So I'll let others dive into that further. But before we conclude, let me just make three closing remarks to sum up. First, it's something we couldn't really get into today, but... The unconditional nature of the Abrahamic covenant still has implications for the nation of Israel. The the ethnic nation of Israel still have implications with this Abrahamic covenant. We saw that no manner of disobedience could keep God from fulfilling his promises to the nation of Israel, Abraham and his descendants, in that covenant. While the second generation in, um, in Deuteronomy and other generations of Israel, under those good leaders, like I mentioned, while they experienced a portion of the blessing, they didn't experience the full extent of the covenant because of their disobedience. They didn't obey God perfectly. 
Jesus provides the means to overcome their sinful hearts, and he brings fulfillment to the promises, but just because he brings the means for those promises to be fulfilled doesn't mean that they all have been fulfilled. There are certain promises to the nation of Israel that we still are waiting for fulfillment for in the future. And by the way, all those passages I read about the new covenant in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, those are written to the nation of Israel, and if you read the context around them, they actually reiterate and re, they promise and remind the people about the land that they're going to have, about the nation that God is going to form them into. Now, we as Gentiles are brought into the blessings of the covenant. We can share in them. But just because we do doesn't mean that we have to spiritualize and um, ignore all of the promises God has made to the nation of Israel. But again, that's something way too big, and it's already 10, 15. So, last two things. Second, believers should rejoice because of the change that God has brought about in our hearts by the work of the Spirit. If there's a piece of application we can take from here today, it's that if we're a part of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit has made our hearts alive. Any growth that we have in Christ is because of what God has done in us. And so we should rejoice. We should glorify God because of that and not be proud and puffed up in and of ourselves. And then lastly, we, like the Israelites, are called to listen and live. Like we said, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant, but God has filled the Scripture with truth about himself, with commands to us, with what James calls the perfect law of liberty, of this commands for us to follow in obedience to Christ. Again, not to earn favor with him, but out of love for him, out of a true expression of our faith for him. So, just like the Israelites, I encourage you to listen and live. Since that's all the time we have, I'll close in prayer very briefly, and then I'll uh, let you guys out for a break before the service. So, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I praise you for the book of Deuteronomy and the truth that you, can, you have communicated through it. I pray that you would just continue to help us understand um, these difficult issues, and I pray that you would be at work in our hearts. We know that we cannot bring about change in ourselves. We cannot obey in and of ourselves. And yet you have commanded us to. I praise you for the work that you've done in the hearts of believers to be able to obey you. And I pray that you would continue to work that in our hearts today. It's in your name I pray. Amen.